0: Today what I want to talk to you about are some things that can make us reluctant and when we get in a position of reluctance it can keep us from moving forward and experiencing the best things that God would have for us. Of course there are all kinds of things that would make us reluctant in life, right? Like going to the dentist, we're all reluctant to go to the, and why not? I mean, who wants to go where somebody's going to stick a needle in your mouth, then they're going to put in an instrument of torture that, sp- that spins at 5,000 RPMs, only to leave you with a numb lip drooling all over your shirt to go back to work, and then they make you pay for it, right? I mean, who's anxious to go and do that, right? We'd be reluctant. Another one is like going to have a colonoscopy. I'm not going to describe that one in as much detail as I did the dentist, but uh, you get the idea, right? Okay, we're reluctant. Or we're reluctant, what about if our spouse comes to us and says, honey, we need to talk. We're reluctant to have that conversation. There are any of a number of other places where that might be the case. You might be reluctant to... Have a conversation to confront somebody that you need to confront. Maybe you need to go and talk to the boss, but you're nervous about that. Or to a coworker, and you're nervous about that. Maybe you're reluctant to start into a diet, or to deal with your debt, or to tithe, or to get into a small group. Any of a number of things. You might find yourself in one of those that I've already mentioned, or in your mind, there might be something else that comes right away, and you think, well, here's something that I'm pretty reluctant about. There are all sorts of things, but my question today that I really want to get to the bottom of is, is why? I mean, why are we reluctant about the things we're reluctant about? What causes us to shrink back from just pressing forward? Because we typically know these are things that have to be done and have to be accomplished. Well, it seems that we can boil it down, and there are just some common denominators in terms of reasons for reluctance. And one of those, the first one that I'd mention, is fear. Fear. We get afraid. We're afraid to confront somebody because if we do, maybe we're just going to make matters worse, and so we're slow to do that, or we refuse to do that altogether. A lot of people are reluctant to get married. They figure, I see all of these marriages around me that are falling apart, and and maybe if I get married, that's going to happen to me. Fear is a great motivator to keep us from doing things. Fear is one reason for reluctance. Another one is doubt, we're not sure if we're going to get it or if it's the right thing for us to do even. And so even though we have like this 90% thought that this is definitely something that I ought to do, that 5 or 10%, it just might not work out. And so we're reluctant to even get it started for fear and in doubt that maybe it's not going to work out in the way that I want it to work out or maybe in dealing with your debt. Like, I know that I should take that on, but I'm not sure if I can accomplish it, and I don't want to get into it, and it gets all messy, and there are conversations I have to have, and there there are people I need to talk to, and it could just be so uncomfortable. And I'm not sure I'm going to get it done anyway. So the doubt just keeps us from getting started in the first place. Another one, a third reason for reluctance is self-protection. Yeah, I'm not sure that I want to get into this tithing thing, because if I get into regularly contributing something, then what if I want that money for myself later on? Or I don't want to get into a group. I don't want to volunteer to serve because that's going to take a little bit of time away from something that I might just want to do for myself. And I just want to live for me. And so self-protection keeps us reluctant from jumping into things because maybe it just won't work out the way that I want it to or maybe it's just going to take too much time away from me. So there are all sorts of circumstances that can keep us sort of stalled right where we are. Procrastinating, reluctant to move forward into something that ultimately could very well be the best thing that we do need to experience. But we won't even take ourselves there. Of course, we're not the only person or the first person to to deal with this issue of reluctance in our lives. There are many others who have gone before us. In fact, Moses, the one who we're studying in these days, experienced a great deal of reluctance himself. In fact, we're calling this sermon, The Reluctant Prophet. Because that's what we see in him. But before we can understand what he's reluctant about, we need to understand what he was called to, what he was led to. What are the things that he is saying no to? And we find that in Exodus chapter 3. And I'd invite you to go ahead and open up a Bible to Exodus chapter 3. The Bible starts in Genesis, then Exodus is the very next book. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you can find it there. Or if you want to use one of the Bibles that are provided for you in whatever venue you might be listening in on today, one of these page numbers might help you to find your way there. They're under the seats in the live auditorium. They might be in front of you in one of the other venues, uh, but there's a Bible that's been provided for you, or you can go online to a Bible app, or certainly to our app, and you can link to it there. There's also an outline for you in the pathway notes you received, or that's also available online. Lots of ways to access But Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're going to make our way through just a lot of verses today. It'd be helpful for you to have that open in your lap. And it would be great, I believe, if when we think about the reluctance that comes into our life, if there was a way to overcome that, if there was a way to figure out how do I move myself forward without all of the fear, without all of the doubt without all of that sort of sense of self-protection. And I believe that this passage we're looking at today is going to help us out with that. The passage we're going to be looking at is one of the most famous and familiar parts of the Moses story. But before we get into that specifically, I just want to put us all on the same page. Maybe this is your first time with us at Pathway or the first time with us in this series. And uh, so just want to catch you up to where we've been, or maybe just for review if you have been along. Moses is a guy who was born as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, in Egypt. He was born at a time when there was tremendous animosity against the Israelite people. They've come down into Egypt because of a famine. They've been living there for hundreds of years at this point, but the tide is starting to turn. In fact, there's such animosity that the Pharaoh or the king of the day has issued a decree that all of the Hebrew babies should be killed because there were becoming too many Hebrews, too many Israelites in the land, and he was fearing that they might become too powerful. And so he orders that all of the baby boys would be killed, and Moses is born in that exact situation. Now his mother hides him for as long as she can, which is about three months, but she can't hide him any longer. And she knows it's a certain death if she just hides him at home. So she goes out on a limb and she tries something. And she ends up putting Moses in a basket in the Nile River, praying that God would provide. And that's exactly what God did. He actually brought Pharaoh's daughter, herself down to the Nile where she typically would come down to to bathe and she found Moses there and felt compassion in her heart toward him so much so that she decides to raise Moses as her own child and so Moses grew up as an Israelite but in the Egyptian palace he grew up among all of the power and all of the prestige and, and all of the position and platform that a pharaoh would have. He could see that. He could experience it for himself, living ultimately in the lap of luxury, which lasts for the first 40 years of his life. At the end of those 40 years, he's actually out and he sees an Egyptian beating up and harming an innocent Hebrew slave. And he can't stand for that and his sense of justice rises up within him and he attacks that Egyptian and Pharaoh gets very angry about that and sets out to kill Moses. So Moses has to flee. After these 40 years in Egypt, he flees to the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula. I'll show you some of that in a minute. But he flees to the other side to a land called Midian where he might find some protection and be away from the Egyptian Pharaoh, and he goes there, and for the next 40 years, he lives there in Midian. He lives out in the wilderness, essentially. He sets himself up there. He settles in the land. He gets a job. He has, he gets married. He gets two kids. He's driving a minivan. I mean, everything that you would do sort of at that stage of life, Moses has thrown himself into and he's enjoying that. It's a very different life from where it started in Egypt, but he's enjoying where he is. He's gotten comfortable where he is, but that's not going to last. Chapter 3 in verse 1 starts to launch us into some of the circumstances that are going to move Moses in a different direction. Verse 1 says this, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Let me show you where all of this is transpiring. We've got a bit of a map here. We've got Egypt over here. You see the Nile River coming up. This is the Nile Delta with very different tributaries that run up into the Mediterranean Sea. The Israelites, when they came into Egypt, were given the best of the land, which is right here. they called the land of Goshen. This is where the Israelites set up originally, though they ended up spreading out throughout Egypt a bit as we go. So Moses, when he flees, flees all the way to the other side of the Sinai Peninsula to Midian, which we know for sure was in Saudi Arabia, but also many believe that there were also tribes of Midian that were living actually on the eastern shores of the Sinai Peninsula. And this is where we find Moses for these 40 years is over here. Well, now as this story opens up, he's making his way through the wilderness. It becomes a mountainous terrain down here to this place, which is called Mount Horeb. It's also called Mount Sinai. That's one and the same. Well, this is where this story is taking place. And Carolyn and I, on our recent trip to Egypt, had the opportunity to go, actually all of those places, but to come here to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb, and experience what is present There, We were very glad to be able to do so because at times travel in Egypt is restricted. In fact, about five years ago we very much wanted to go to Egypt but weren't able to go because of the dangers of travel at that time. And there still are some dangers and you could tell that from the way that they were sort of being protective as we were there. They didn't want to pose for any pictures but if you take a look at this, this is actually an armed security officer that was riding with us wherever we went. When we were on the van, he was there on the van with us. If we got out of the van to go see a site, he walked along with us. And also, while we were in Egypt, there was a four-man police escort. That was with us and with our van the whole time at times they'd sort of speed up and go way up in front of us like they were looking or expecting something then they'd kind of drop back you always kind of wondered what was going on we never felt like we were in any danger but they were very clearly um, doing some things to protect us well in fact when we went to Mount Sinai we were supposed to drive from Cairo down into the Sinai Peninsula and over but apparently the dangers were such they actually flew us over the hot spots and uh, drove us back into Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. But we were so very glad that we could be there because many incredible things have happened on or at Mount Sinai some of those we'll get into in this series some of those are actually in other places in the scriptures That would be an interesting study as well But the first of those we find right here in chapter 3 and through it We see the first key we're highlighting from this story namely that God prepares the servant So we're getting started there for your outline. You can jot that down if you want God prepares the servant. Take a look at verse 2, where we find Moses at Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. It says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that, the bush, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, there's a bush talking to me. No, he didn't say that. He said, here I am. Now, there's a very interesting place that you can go and visit that is connected to this story. Right there at the foot of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, there is a monastery. In fact, it's the longest continually operating monastery in the world. It's called St. Catherine's and you can see it right here. You can see the monastery against this rugged backdrop, and this is basically what all of the region around here looks like. This is not Mount Sinai itself. Mount Sinai is like right over here, but um, it was an interesting place to go and visit, and this monastery has been in existence since the 300s AD. It was added on to in the 500s AD with the surrounding wall and the sort of fortress-looking condition, and the reason that this particular place which is just down there at the foot of the mountain in the midst of nowhere land out in the wilderness. The reason that it became known in a place that people would pay attention to is because for a long time after Moses went to Mount Sinai, pilgrims have continued to come to the mountain to want to hear from God themselves. Well, as those pilgrims came by, they noticed that there was an unusual rare bush that was growing right in this spot that they really didn't know much of, that they hadn't seen much of before. And they came to believe that it wasn't just a bush, but it was the bush, the very bush that Moses had seen, that burning bush that somehow was still alive. Now, at this point, hundreds and hundreds of years Later, And so what they did is they transplanted that bush to a very nearby spot and they built a basilica right over top of where this bush was. In fact, the altar of the basilica, which you can see right here, is built right over where those roots were. So they took the bush and they moved it. They transplanted it to a nearby spot. And uh, you can actually go, and they believe that the one that is growing there now is the bush that is still growing strong, and you can see it right there. How would you like to be the person responsible for keeping that bush alive, right? I don't care how much of a green thumb you have. That's not a job that I would want to have. But here's the thing that cracks me up about this. Look at what's down in front of the wall in front of the bush. This is a fire extinguisher now just think about that for a minute of course you don't want to lose a bush that if if it's really like thirty-five hundred years old you don't want to look lose that bush but if the burning bush starts burning again are you going to put it out I mean come on this is quite a dilemma that uh, the people taking care of this thing have well Moses for his part he wasn't about to put the thing out right Verse 5, we read more about what's going on here. He says, God says, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is its holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I love Moses' response here because it's very clear he's got a sense of the awesome holiness of God. He does take off his sandals because this is holy ground, as God says. He does hide his face. He won't look at God because he knows he's not worthy to look at God. So you think God's got his attention? Yeah, no doubt about it. So what does God say to him when he's got his attention? Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering." Just as we saw back in chapter 2, God is not distant. God is not far off. God cares for his people. God loves his people. He has compassion. He is going to provide for his people. And that's what we see him speaking to right here. He says, I've heard the cry of my people back in Egypt, and we're going to do something about that. Verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. What's another name for the land flowing with milk and honey? The promised land. That's exactly it. We're going to read more, experience more about the promised land as we go forward in a future week. But that's what he's talking about right here. And Moses is like, yes, God's going to come and He's going to do something on behalf of the people of Israel stuck there in Egypt under these horrible conditions. I'm so thankful for that. Thank you, God. That is just awesome. But God, I'm curious. How are you going to do that? Oh, never mind. It doesn't matter how you're going to do it as long as I don't have to go. Verse 10. So now go. God says to Moses. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses didn't see that coming. How old is Moses at this point? 80. He's 80. He's had his AARP card for years at this point. He's been eating dinner at 4.30 as long as he can remember. You follow him down the road on his donkey, he's got his turn signal on, he doesn't realize it. He's like, you've got to find somebody younger. I'm too old. I'm in retirement. The problem is there's no retirement with God. Now, yes, I understand there's retirement in the sense of we are in a career, and and for most people somewhere in their 60s, it's like, I'm done with that career. I'm retiring from that. Yes, I get that, but not in the Lord's service. There's no such thing as retiring from the Lord's service, or there shouldn't be. Though many people kind of go after that with, well, I'm retiring from work, I'm gonna retire from my other things that I do, my volunteer stuff, and I'm just gonna be kind of coasting from here on. But there's no basis of that in the scriptures. In fact, the scriptures are very plain that what you do is the examples that we find. You serve, and you serve, and you serve, and you die. You serve, and you serve, and you serve, and you go and meet Jesus. See, regardless of your age or stage, God has a work for you. Sometimes we think, well, I'm too busy early on, and then I'm too retired later on, and so we never really get to that place where we're making our dynamic impact for the kingdom of God, but we can, and we must. And I would encourage you, regardless of what stage you find yourself at, to ask yourself, what is the contribution that I'm making to the purposes of God being accomplished? Well, I'm not sure that I want to give that much time. What? You're saying you're reluctant to step into it. That's something that Moses was about. He's feeling reluctant himself, and we're going to see it as we move on, but God prepares the servant by identifying a need, calling him into service, commissioning him to go and to serve, and Moses says, all right, let's do it. How soon can I get started? Is that what he says? Not exactly. There's going to be a need for another step before Moses is ready to go, and that's that God provides the supply. God prepares the servant. He meets with him through a burning bush, of all things, He provides the supply. Turns out that Moses is going to need a lot of provision from God because right after God calls him to go, those doubts, those objections, that reluctance, it starts to rise up to the service. Look at verse 10 again. God says to Moses, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. As you can see, the first place Moses needs God's supply is for doubted ability. For doubted ability. Remember that Moses spent 40 years there in the palace of Egypt. He knew exactly what it would be like to go to Pharaoh. He knows Pharaoh believes that his power is absolute, and in that day his power was absolute. So Moses knows he doesn't want me to come to him and tell him what he's supposed to do. And the thing is that Moses' opinion about that is an informed opinion. But what we don't have is God saying, please, Moses, I need you to go. He doesn't give him any sort of a pep talk. Come on, Moses, you can do it. In fact, I need you to do it because you've got insider information. You know more than anybody else that I could possibly. I need you to be there. Come on, Moses, you can do it. You can do it. It's not what he says. What does God say in response to this reluctance? Says verse 12, I will be with you. I will be with you. Friends, what difference would that make for you when there's something that you're reluctant about, something that you're shrinking back from doing, a place that you're unwilling to go, a conversation that you've been unwilling to have, a witnessing situation where you're just afraid to launch into that because I'm just not sure that I can do it. What do you have? You've got doubted ability. What difference would it make if you understood that God says to you as he says to Moses, I will be with you. Unfortunately, Moses is having trouble taking that step, and he continues in verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, he's just kind of entertaining them, what, okay, what if I do that, all right? Suppose I go and I say to them, to the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This little phrase has caused a lot of consternation on the part of people trying to figure out, well, what exactly is he trying to say there? What exactly does it mean to say that I am who I am? But I don't think it has to be as complicated as we've made it over the years when god calls himself i am it's the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency and and self-existence god's existence his plans his purposes they don't need to be contingent on anybody or anyone else he's completely able in and of himself to do whatever it is he desires to do he is eternal he is ever present he is omniscient It's actually a lot like what we read of in the New Testament, which people haven't had as much difficulty sort of grasping, and that comes in Revelation chapter 1. It's this verse here. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. For Moses to understand that the one who is sending him out is the I am, and to be able to talk to the people of Israel when he gets there, that I am has sent me, that the totally self-existent God who has all power, who has all authority, that he is the one who is coming to you, he is the one who is standing behind what I am doing, it would have made all the difference in the world. It would have brought them comfort and peace and confidence, and Moses as well, or it should because that's just what he needed. So now his reluctance is gone, and he's ready to go, right? Well, let's see. After God reiterates, here's my call to you, the end of chapter 3, that's what he's saying. We get to chapter 4 in verse 1. Moses answered, uh, but what, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses is clearly still reluctant And in this case, he needs to find God's supply for questioned authority, right? First, for doubted ability. I don't think I can do this. Now, for questioned authority, what if they don't believe me? See, it's not just that Moses doubts himself. He's imagining that the other people are going to doubt him also. God says, okay, fine. Take this. Let me give you a few things that you can do to prove to them that there's a power beyond your own behind you. And he gives him three signs. And he says, in fact, why don't you practice two of those signs right now before you go anywhere? and the first of those was to take his staff and to throw it down on the ground, and he threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he picked that snake back up, and it became a rod again. He says, that'll show him. He says, if that doesn't, then you can try this one also. Take your hand and stick it inside your cloak, which he did. Now pull out your hand. It was leprous. Stuck it back in again, pulled it out a second time. Now it is clean that will convince them. And if it doesn't, you can do a third, which is just gather up some water from the Nile. Remember, he's on the other side of the Sinai, so he can't demonstrate this one right where he is. He says, take some water out of the Nile, put it on the ground, and turn it into blood. You've got that power. You've got that authority. You've got that ability, because I am with you, and I am providing for you. Those are three pretty impressive signs that Moses can use to convince the people that they should listen. And so certainly Moses is going to stop being reluctant now and go. Chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, uh, excuse me, uh, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. All right, Moses, we're getting kind of tired of your excuses. Whatever God calls him to go and do, even regardless of how he prepares him, Moses is like, no, I don't think I can do that. It's getting kind of embarrassing at this point. And to this, we see his reluctance is for deficient capacity. He doesn't have enough to get it done. Moses is saying that he's not able because of speech issues, because he stutters, because he mumbles all the time, and sometimes even falls back into talking in the local dialect and at. <clears throat> he's on a little bit of shaky ground, you might say. You might say he's on a little bit of slippy ground here also. This is concerning. You didn't even get that one because you, you don't even. Yeah. He's on a little bit of shaky ground or slippery ground. Yeah, maybe even slippy ground. Because God has already spoken to him about this in his response to the first issue. What did he say? I will be with you. Do you think that goes so far as to helping you to know what to say and how to say it? Maybe so. Verse 12. Now go. He's getting a little perturbed. Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Finally, there's not much more that Moses can say to that. And so his excuses actually stop. But it doesn't mean that he's ready to go. Doesn't mean he's ready to go. Finally, he just comes out with what's been bugging him. What he's been thinking from the very start. Verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. This is the point where if you're standing near Moses you start to back up a little bit <clears throat> so that the lightning bolt doesn't get you also. Regardless of what God has said, how I will equip you, he says, no. Finally, Moses just comes out and says, I don't want to do it. Send somebody else. We know what this is like because there are times that somebody invites us into something to do something, ask us to do something. It's like, there's no way I want to do that. But we don't come out and say, there's no way I want to do that. We say, well, I can't do this because I've got doubted ability. Or, no, I can't do that because there's some questioned authority. People won't. No, I can't do that because I don't have the capacity or whatever it might be. We have all kinds of excuses that keep us from just saying, I don't want to do that. Go find somebody else. Well, Moses finally, when he's kind of backed into a corner, says, I just don't want to do it. And God is not pleased. Verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. What's the problem here? He needs help for resisted conformity. Moses is saying, no thanks, I don't want to conform to what your call is on my life. I don't want to obey, and at first we might even feel a little bit of empathy toward him, because what he's being asked to go and do is a big, big deal. To go to Pharaoh, Pharaoh doesn't want to have him visit. Again, it's an informed opinion. We also might feel a little bit of empathy toward him because it just looks like he's humble, right? He's just saying, I just don't think that I've got what it takes. He's just acting in sort of this humble manner. But what we can't let go of, what we can't miss is the fact that his reluctance is really nothing more than sin it's sin. God wasn't saying, you know, if you could see your way into doing this for me, I'd really be appreciative. Look, I understand if you can't do it, but it would help me out a lot if you could do this for me, Moses. That's not what this is. This is the call of God on his life. This is who he's made him to be, and he's calling him and inviting him into that service, and Moses is saying, no. Nope won't do it. We need to see it for what it is, and that's why God's anger burns, not just because, oh, who am I going to get to do something if Moses won't do it for me? It's because Moses is refusing to enter in to what God knows is best for him, and he continues to set aside all of the promises that have been given to him along the way in his reluctance. Now, that's not to say I'm not empathetic with Moses when he considers who he is and and factors that I just don't have the right stuff. I understand that. I've been there. I've felt that way, and maybe you have also. Something that just sort of causes us that reluctance, because I'm just not sure that I can do it. And so we just choose to live in what we know we can do, In other words, we're choosing the comfortable, we're choosing the familiar over the call of God. But here's what I believe to be true. I believe that God has something that he wants to call you to do that's beyond what you believe that you're able to accomplish. I believe that. I'm sure of that, in fact. Because apart from that, what's the need to operate in any realm of faith or any realm of trust in God? If I can just go and do it based on the talents that I see that I've already got, What need do I even have for God? And that's essentially what Moses is saying. I'm reluctant. I'm not going to go. I don't see myself having the ability to do that. And until I see something that I know I can do, I'm not willing to trust. Yes, you say I will be with you, but I'm not willing to trust you in that. And I wonder, for how many of us is that also our story? Yeah, we believe God's able, but he's able for those other people. He's able for somebody else who's done great things, but that's not me. He wouldn't do that for me. He will do that for you. And I believe that he has something so big for you to do that it's bigger than what you believe can be accomplished. What might that be for you? Are you open to even figuring it out? To discovering it? To pray, God, reveal to me where it is that you would have me to go? I understand. I won't see all of the end right at the beginning but I still want to follow after you. I want to do big things. Don't we all want that? God does too, and he promises, I will be with you as you go. You feeling weak? That's okay. Look at this. Same provision is available for you that it was available for Moses and, and others regarding this very sort of thing. Here's what, here's what Paul has spoken to him. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Because my power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. God's power is made perfect in the very fact that you believe that you don't have everything that's necessary. Because finally you're going to rely on Him to provide what only He can provide. Paul goes on, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, sure that some of you are thinking I would love that I'd love to experience that I would love to do those sorts of awesome things but I don't know about you but I don't get any burning bushes God hasn't shown up in any bush that doesn't burn up and told me here's exactly what I want you to. Moses is the lucky one because he can hear it well I think we can still learn something from Moses and his experience what Moses has going for him is that he has an open heart and open eyes to discover to seek and to find, which is sometimes something that we refuse. Think about this day that Moses has had. How did it start? started like any other day. Just got up like normal, put on his cloak, had his coffee, his Pop-Tarts, whatever he had. I don't know what he had, and he just goes out and does the same thing that he does every day. Takes the flocks off, tries to find them some food, in the wilderness, tries to find him some water to drink, just doing what he has done every other day. But on this day, something different. God shows up in a way he's never seen him before. And Moses, I don't know if you caught it at the first part of the text, but it says that it wasn't until Moses walked over and explored what was going on that God speaks. God doesn't start the bush burning and yell to Moses where he is way over there, hey, come on over. Moses goes and explores. And I think that sometimes is what we miss. Is that there are things that pop into our ordinary day that we push away. That we don't have anything to do with. We're busy. And if I go and I explore that, then how am I going to get all my other stuff done? I just want to kind of have my blinders on and do my thing. <clears throat> Nobody's going to bother me. I'm not going to bother anybody. And what are we missing out on? to refuse to do so. This interruption comes into Moses' very ordinary day and he pursues it and finds God. Maybe that interruption in your day is something that you're not supposed to shun. Maybe God's going to speak to you through that interruption. Maybe that person that you see coming down the hall at work and you kind of duck down a corridor because you want to avoid them. Maybe there's something that God could teach you through that encounter. Maybe there's a door that is going to open. Yes, you're not expecting it. It's just an ordinary day, but God works well in the midst of ordinary days. So we need to be willing to entertain the idea, God, what is it you're speaking to me? How are you going to communicate to me in the midst of the ordinary? And when that thing comes, we run toward it instead of run away from it. I don't want to be bothered. I've got enough of my own stuff to do. I don't need anything else. I'm comfortable. I'm familiar with where I am and what I'm doing. I just want to hang out here. And what we end up in is a reluctance to experience what may very well be God himself trying to speak into our life. And the more we're reluctant, the more we're going to miss out on the biggest purposes that God has in store for us. Why are we reluctant? Fear, doubt, self-protection. I'm too busy. I just want to do my own thing, and we end up missing out. Friend, if you find that thing that God has in store for you, you will be so thrilled that you were willing to let go of the reluctance and run into the midst of what you might find there. That being, you don't have to open every door, but until you open some, you're never going to experience anything bigger than what you're experiencing in the moment. And I believe that God has something for you to do that's bigger than what you imagine. If we're willing to go. If we're willing to set aside our reluctance and entertain that God is trying to speak to me, even in the midst of the most ordinary thing. Doesn't have to be during, while you're reading your Bible, doesn't have to be while you're praying, doesn't have to be while you're at church with your other Christian friends. In the midst of the most ordinary and mundane, God's still small voice we'll speak, and we'll lead. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And if we're willing to overcome the reluctance, we'll find exactly where He would take us for our benefit and His. Heavenly Father, thank you for Moses who gives us an example of what we oughtn't do. Here's a guy who led through doubt and deliverance. So a lot of that doubt here today In this passage and we can see a lot of doubt that springs up in our own lives also so father I do ask that you would give us the courage to be people that overcome the reluctance That you would give us the courage to trust that what you've said you will do that you will do that just as you promised that you will be with Moses I will be with you it's the same promise we read of over and over and over again in other places in the scriptures Lord, give us the confidence to trust. Give us the willingness to say, this is outside my comfort zone, just like all of it was for Moses. And as we're going to see, his willingness to step into that which he was reluctant about, as he's willing to step in and face the doubts that he was experiencing, the fears that he was experiencing, the self-protection that he was experiencing, that's that, that that's where he finds his very best for him. Lord, we believe that we're going to have to step into some realms and experiences that might not be the ones that we're anxious to go into, where we're going to find you speaking to us as well. So Lord, us, Lord, make us willing to follow after you, claiming the promise that you will be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.